Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is the Bears reporter for 670 The Score and the sideline reporter for WBBM News Radio. Oh, and he was with the Cubs during the World Series season. Thanks for joining me today, and good afternoon, Mark Grody. What's going on, Tim Lizzie? Yeah, I even got a ring out of that whole World Series thing. We're going to get to that in a second. That's exciting. Let's start with your history, though. You attended college in Downstate and Normal at ISU. Did you work on the radio in college? Yeah, I did. I worked for a uh, radio station called 106.1 FM WZND. <laughs> Uh, whereas with a lot of people who work at a college radio station, I had the luxury of doing everything. I was the FM radio jock playing modern music, which back then was like the grunge era was just hitting like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and all those guys. And then, of course, I did sports on WZND, got to do a little bit of Illinois State Redbird play-by-play and color commentating. So, yeah, it was a great experience. It was a tryout radio station. We didn't get paid or anything like that. There was no college credit. It was all on a tryout basis, and there was just a a packed staff of people. Let's get into your professional career. When I met you, you were doing sports updates for WBBM 780 every half hour. How does a guy from Chicago, or Itasca specifically, who grew up a fan get a job that has him talk about the sports teams he grew up loving? Pretty awesome. I would say, like, It's good to be from Chicago if you want to be in this business, and it's bad to be from Chicago if you're in this business because, you know, I think a lot of people like the idea of working in their hometown. However, Chicago is a tough nut to crack since it is market three, so you have to put a little bit of work into it and working at some of the smaller radio stations to get to market three Chicago. But yeah, it's been a blast. Nobody had to teach me the history of Chicago sports because I pretty much lived it as a fan and a kid growing up and rooting for all the Chicago teams. So that part was easy. And all of that background and history that I still use in some way, shape or form, just about every single broadcast that I do, I'm able to derive something from something that I did growing up or just being around and immersed in Chicago sports, but it's great because it's Chicago sports and it's what I love growing up. The only downside, and I would only put, I would put that in air quotes is that you do start to get a little bit jaded. You start to see how the hot dogs are made and you do lose. I have, I should, shouldn't say you, I should say I have lost a big chunk of the actual fandom that went along with it. I mean, that's totally natural and probably professional that I've lost a lot of the fandom, but I have to say it's almost like some of my innocence being stripped away from me, but that's, that's just the business we're in. You have had various assignments for the bears and the Cubs. Walk us through how you became the pre and post game guy for the Chicago Cubs. Oh my God. That was quite a ride. All right. First of all, Elizabeth, nobody ever thought, or I never thought, that the Chicago Cubs would leave WGN radio. It's just like what came first, the the radio station or the Cubs, they were just intertwined together. They were so identified together and, you know, WGN radio was the Cubs. So once they come to our company at that time, we were a CBS radio corporation. I was like, okay, I mean, I have to, throw the proverbial hat in the ring. I remember even before that, my boss, Mitch Rosen, said, you know, this might be something you want to put your hat in the ring for. You may want to apply for interview for. And I was like, hell yeah. And I interviewed with, at the time, the Cubs games in the first year were being played on WBBM radio. I interviewed with 
Ron Gleason because he would be in charge of the decision. There was a few decision makers. And I remember my first interview was, I don't want this to be an interview that you're giving me just because I work for the company. If that's what this is, I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste your time. If I'm not a serious candidate, then, you know, kick me out of your office right now. And he said, no, you are a serious candidate. Um, You know, I had some built-in advantages having known Ron Gleason, him having known my work, having done really good work with the White Sox when they were in the World Series and knowing how to conduct myself in a locker room. And yeah, basically went through about three or four interviews with the final interview being, Elizabeth, where Ron Gleason, the boss, the guy with whom I was interviewing, threw me in a studio with no script, no nothing, was not allowed to write anything down, just a microphone and a recorder, basically, and said, okay, you go ahead and just talk for 20 minutes like you were doing a post-game show, which is a daunting task for anybody in radio just because we're all kind of perfectionists and we hate the way we sound and we know we could do it better. So I did it and I felt like it was crappy, but apparently I crushed it and that was what put me over the top. I was eventually offered the job and it was a great moment and a great day. And I think the best part of that day was having been offered the gig and then, of course, yeah, pretty much accepting it. I don't think I said, like, slam dunk yes, but I, I knew I was going to take it. And just walking home on a beautiful, sunshiny day, walking home downtown, and just knowing that I had the job that becomes pre- and post-game host. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a process, and I'm, like, fast-forwarding through a lot of it. Quite a process and quite a delight to have been offered the job and, and subsequently taken the job. Okay, I'm going to fast forward through part of it as well. At what point in that season did you realize the 2016 team might actually go all the way and be in the World Series? Was it early in the season? Was it late? Where were we? It was early in the season because for people who don't remember, the Cubs got off to a ridiculously fat, like they ran away from the pack in their division and a lot of the National League, quite frankly, in the first 30 games of that season. And there was nothing fluky about it. Like, they were dominating teams. The run differential was crazy. The defense was historic. The starting pitching was, like, legit excellent. And there just was nobody close to the Cubs for just about the entire season. It got a little bit crazy right at the All-Star break. But then they quickly got themselves back in gear right after the All-Star game and just rode themselves all the way, obviously, through the World Series and the World Series title and all that kind of stuff. So to answer your question, yeah, it was. Honestly, it was pretty early in the season where I'm like, this is at least the best team in baseball right now. Whether I didn't know if they were going to win the World Series, but I knew they were the best team. Flipping forward again, tell us about the atmosphere as the last out happened in Game 7. Oh, man. I mean, it was tense because it was a one run ball game, you know, before the final out was recorded. So, and a lot of craziness had occurred in that particular game. There was a game time two run homer by the Indians, which stunned Cubs fans and had Cubs fans saying, here we go again. There was some very questionable decisions made by the manager, Joe Madden, just a bevy of highs and lows from the game. There was a rain delay. And there the Cubs were, the Indians having scored a run already in the bottom of the 10th inning. It's a one-run game. Carl Edwards Jr., who started the inning, comes out. Mike Montgomery gets put in. And then a slow ground ball to Chris Bryant, who throws it across the diamond to Rizzo. And I always say this, like, first of all, like the actual atmosphere is in Cleveland. 
but there was tons of Cubs fans there. Cubs fans didn't outnumber the Cleveland fans, but they were the voices that you heard on that final out. They were en masse for sure. So you heard them, you heard their emotion, you see the fans running out of the field. And I will say this, my emotion was, I mean, like, it sunk in right away. Like, I felt that a lot of times people will say, and athletes will say, well, it didn't really sink in. It sunk in for me right there. I had, like, this jolt of adrenaline and, like, emotion go through me right when that final out was recorded. And then after that, it was, like, back to work because I had, like, a five-hour post-game show to do. Okay, I wasn't at the parade, but you were. Can you tell me where you were and what that day was like? That was amazing. So we all met at Wrigley Field. It was quite an operation that the Cubs coordinators and the people who did that kind of stuff had to put together because they had to put all the players on certain buses as a part of the parade. And then a lot of us broadcasters, families of the ballplayers. So it's a pretty daunting task. And I think it was pretty random. I just happened to get put on a pretty awesome bus. And my boss was, and this is a rooftop bus, so it's open air, all that kind of stuff. It was a beautiful day. I'm on a bus with Kyle Schwarber, Jake Arietta. And Mike Montgomery, Montgomery, who gets to be saved to win the game. So I was on a totally awesome bus. It was one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of to do this slow roll down Michigan Avenue with millions of people out there just jam packed in to see the Cubs. You know, Cubs were rock stars for a day. And I got to kind of be in the background and get some pretty awesome pictures of it. And yeah, I've never experienced anything like that. That was probably in terms of like the peripheral parts of that whole season. That was my favorite part. And then the thing or the Grant Park celebration where they're up on the stage. And I remember going to those things when I was younger in high school for the nineties bold and being part of the pack. And then to be on the stage, I was, I was not honored or anything like that, but I was on the stage with these guys backstage, so to speak, watching the whole thing take place. So it was amazing. The view that I had. When and where did you get your ring then? So the ring came later on, and I did not know if I was going to get a ring. You know, people kept saying, yeah, you were part of the broadcast. You did some play-by-play. Of course you're going to get a ring. Of course you're going to get a ring. And I was skeptical. To me, I honestly put it at, and this was not me just, you know, displaying humility. I thought it was 50-50 whether or not I would get a ring because I'm just a damn broadcaster, albeit, you know, sort of part of the team in that regard. But I was not on the Cubs payroll. I was not a Cubs employee. So I didn't think I was going to get a ring. But then I get a letter one day via email from Tom Ricketts's office. Ricketts is the owner of the Cubs saying, Mark, you need to go get yourself sized for a damn World Series ring. And I decided to ran, ran to the mall. Got got my size, and then eventually, you know, after the players got theirs and, you know, a lot of the other Cubs employees, I was finally presented a World Series ring. And it was funny because they had, like, all sorts of different levels of rings. Some were bigger and better. Some were smaller. And I actually got one of the bigger, better rings. So I was even shocked by that. That was truly humbling to have received that. And I keep it in a nice, warm, safe place in my place. It's pretty awesome to have a World Series ring. When you're in the broadcast booth, you don't get to be the geeked out fan like the rest of us are of some of the actors that come through there. You had Bill Murray in there. You had John Cusack, both huge Cubs fans. Who else famous came through the press box as an Uber fan during that season? Eddie Vedder came through multiple times. The lead singer from Pearl Jam, of course. Scotty Pippen hung out with us for a couple innings. That was a blast. Elizabeth Moss, the actress came in there. William Macy, Bill Macy, he came through. Jim Belushi came through. You mentioned Bill Murray, his brother, Brian Doyle Murray came through as well. I know I'm, I'm going to forget people, but yeah, it was, 
it was a cavalcade of stars that made their way through. You know, Wilco was there, the band. Jeff Garland, the comedian, made multiple appearances with us. I mean, he loved hanging out with us. It was one after the other. I mean, all you have to do is go back and, you know, Wikipedia, the basically the list of seventh inning stretch singers throughout, you know, at least in my years, 2015 through 2018. And those are all the people that stopped in our booth and hung out. And, you know, some of whom we would take pictures with, some of whom, you know, guys would probably get autographs from and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was it was a blast and very cool to meet a lot of people. And the, and the thing about a lot of those celebrities that would come through they were just as impressed with us as we were with them because they listened to them. Like Eddie Vedder was a P1, that being program one Cubs radio listener. He sits in Seattle and listens to us. So he saw, he knew Pat Rod. He even looked at me. He goes, he was like, oh, you're Mark Grody. All right. I'm like, no. I'm like, you're damn Eddie Vedder, man. Don't worry about me. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask you about Eddie Vedder because you got closer to him than most of us ever will. He spent time with you. You guys kind of had a cute bromance going. Is he funny? Is he serious? Does he smell good? Like, give me something. <laughs> he doesn't smell bad. I would say Eddie has a neutral smell about him, which I suppose is all all we could ask for from human beings. Smell neutral. Eddie was like, is one of the most unassuming guys I've ever been around. I would not call him funny. He was always very quiet when he came in the booth. He would literally come in the booth. And it was a pretty cramped booth because, you know, obviously this is an old-ass booth that we work out of. So there's really no place for him to sit. He would come in, sometimes like in the middle of an inning, and he'd look at me because I'm the first person that he would greet as as he walked into the booth. And he would just kind of look at me and he'd be like, it's all good, man. He's like, and he would go sit down on the steps with his scorebook and just keep track of the score. And then during commercials, he would talk to us. But he was always very respectful, very quiet. And like I said, probably more impressed with the jobs that we were doing than maybe we were with him. Of course, I can't say that. Being fanboy of Pearl Jam, I was more impressed with him than he was with me. But, yeah, he was a very unassuming dude and obviously hyper-talented when he would sing the seventh-inning stretch. You went from the Cubs to the Bears right away after the World Series, well, a year later. Why did you switch, and how did that happen? Yeah, that was very interesting. It was uh, a decision that was made by the powers that be that they wanted to do a little switch that I would go to the Bears' sideline and Zach Zaidman would come to the Bears' booth to do pre and post. And yeah, I can't get into every single tiny little bit of the minutiae why that decision was made, but it was made nonetheless. As a broadcaster, you have to get creative about what to talk about. All we have right now are past games or pro wrestling. What kind of radio programming and what kind of prep do you do now? Luckily, there's a pretty broad base of sports history about which we can speak, and we do a ton of that. There's a lot of sitting around the campfire, throwing another log on the fire, and talking about, oh, those 90s Bulls, and hey, the 2016 Cubs, and the 05 White Sox, and the three titles by the Stanley Cup by the Blackhawks. And like, luckily, there's a ton of history to discuss. But one other big advantage that we have had throughout COVID-19 in terms of, you know, continuing forth with our programming is that the National Football League has not stopped its off-season business, which has meant they are going to have the NFL draft free agency opened as per usual. So every day there seems to be something going on transaction-wise, and that obviously plays into my beat and my wheelhouse 
So there's always things that we can project. There's always gossip in sports. So that helps our cause. I'm not saying it's easy, but there's just enough going on to where we can all put together radio shows on a daily basis. Not ideal. And, you know, you do have to prep twice as hard because you've got hours to fill and there's only so much reminiscing one can do. But we've dipped heavily into the savings account, but eventually that's going to run out. If you had to pick one quarterback for one playoff game, would it be Mitch Trubisky or Rex Grossman? (laughs) Uh, Mitch Trubisky or Rex Grossman. I'm going to say I'm going to say Mitch Trubisky because I've seen Rex Grossman attempt to quarterback and the numbers were pretty abysmal. So yeah, that's that's my answer, Mitchell Trubisky. As you know, we have Lovey Smith here at Illinois as our head coach. He's a man of few words. If you could have his ear again and give him advice on how to pull together a winning team down here, what would you tell him? How to put together a winning team in Champaign. I would say, Lovey, what you need to do is go raid the SEC conference. You need to spend every single bit of your time recruiting in that area. Really put the Texas accent on because that's where Lovey is from. Really go at it hard and try to sucker those guys into Champaign. Lure the SEC talent into Champaign and then Lovey will have it. I would say probably lose the beer too. Couple of questions about the Bulls, Mark. Is the recent firing of Gar Foreman, was that the right move? Yeah, it was definitely the right move. I mean, He was a survivor with the Bulls for a lot of years. His role was always very difficult to define. I remember when, you know, the way the power structure has been set up, it's been John Paxson and then Gar Foreman for a long time. John Paxson was the face of the team, and that was good. Then he put Gar Foreman out front. That did not work out PR-wise. He just was not a good speaker. It seemed like a lot of his coaching hires, and he did have a big hand in some of those coaching hires, were not particularly good. So it seemed like they had gotten as much out of him as they could. So the the firing of Gar Foreman was a really good idea. I think if for nothing else to show the fan base that they were doing something real and it wasn't business as usual. Which players on the team are you excited about for the future? And I think there's a couple. I mean, I still like Laurie Markkinen. I think that he's got, he had a really bad season this past year. I mean, there was some injury troubles. And I think that the scheme in which he played, the style that the Bulls were playing, which was kind of a confused style, you know, with Jim Boylan pulling the strings, it just didn't suit his game. You know, he was really good before that, before last year. So I still like Mark and I still think that there's hope for him. And I like Zach Levine. I think that he is what he is. And I, when I say that, I mean, he's a scoring machine. You're never going to get great defense out of him. I don't look at him necessarily as a great system player, but if you could find other guys to compliment him and let him sink to the background a little bit and be a guy who can give you a burst of points, I think that that's a really good guy to have. And then, you know, Kobe White, who was last year's first round pick, he's a guy who finally got a chance to start towards the end of the season and it and he was good. He was good towards the end. I don't know what kind of pro he ultimately is. I don't know where he maxes out, but I definitely want to see more from, from Kobe White. I want to ask you a Blackhawks question so we don't leave them out. Has hockey in Chicago gotten more popular since they've won several recent Stanley Cups, or do they still just have a small but fervent following? It's still popular in that they still fill the United Center. It's turned into to some degree, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, 
what the Bulls were even after Jordan left, that the United Center became a place to go, a social outing, a place to be seen, where the Bulls still, up until the last couple of years even, the Bulls filled up the United Center, and all that could be traced back to Jordan and the 90s Bulls. With the Blackhawks, I think it's similar in that it's still a very entertaining product at the UC, even though the team has not been as good. So in terms of attendance and going to the games, they're still popular because before this championship run had started, there were seven and 8,000 people showing up at the UC, and it was just a dying product. I would say, though, that other than going to the games, Blackhawks don't get talked about a whole lot. They don't get written about a whole lot unless they're winning. So it's kind of too, it's, it's sort of multifaceted. People go to the games, but people aren't talking about the games. Mark, you're one of those rare people in radio that nobody can say a bad thing about. Who do you look up to, past or present, in this business? I don't like anybody. I hate both people. I have hate and disdain for who <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, that's a good question, actually, because I could I can answer that easily. As a matter of fact, it was the recently the one-year anniversary of losing this man, and he is considered the godfather of sports talk in Chicago, sometimes controversial figure. He's Czech Kopic. Czech Kopic was the, the guy who I loved in high school. I used to call his show. I was, you know, on the radio with Chet, and then I got to know him a little bit afterwards. You know, I'd see him around, and he knew me. I knew him. I always thought it was cool that I'd see Chet, and he'd know me by name. So I would say that he was number one with a bullet. He showed me that this business existed and that people could do talk shows. And then obviously with the score opening in 92, you know, that took everything to a whole new level. But it was definitely Chet who got me thinking that I'd like to be in this business. Speaking of outings with radio legends, I couldn't go without mentioning our 2005 movie incident. (laughs) You weren't working. I wasn't working. We decided to go to a movie and you told me to pick. Now, my husband already saw Brokeback Mountain and I wanted to see it. So you and I went to see it together. Would you say that was the most memorable movie experience that you ever had? Wow. If it's not the top, it's definitely in the team photo. You know what? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. That was definitely the most memorable viewing experience ever. It was jarring. It was jarring. There's no doubt about it. And since having seen that, I have even since then, Elizabeth, I have not been able to quit you. All right. Before I let you go, a couple more questions. Is there any chance the NFL season, the NBA, any season for Major League Baseball won't happen this year? I think there's a chance the NBA season won't happen just because we're still in such a muddy area in terms of some of the country opening and a lot of the country not. So if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I mean, it gets wiped out and there's a lot of people who are going to be hurting because of it, but that's, that's possible. I do think there will be some semblance of a baseball season and an NFL season. I mean, there's a chance, there's a chance for an entire NFL season. But I think the key is I don't think in any of these venues, I don't know that we'll see one single fan at any of the arenas and or stadiums for the rest of this sports calendar year. I have to ask, I won't make you say which of the 2016 Cubs was the biggest jerk, but who's the guy on the team that everybody liked? Who is the guy on the team that everybody liked? I'm going to say it was Chris Bryant. Chris Bryant. He was just, he's just such a like, not just 
for sports nice. He's a nice human being. Like he made us all look like you say I'm the nicest guy and most likable guy in radio. He made me look like a jerk. That's how nice Chris Bryant is, was, and is. You can find Mark Grody at Mark Grody Sports, and you do weigh in on things like Saturday Night Live and things that aren't sports related. Where else can I read about you or hear about you? So, yeah, you can definitely find me on Twitter at Mark Grody Sports. I do play on Facebook. I play on Instagram. You can just Google my name, Mark Grody, and find me there. And I actually, just just like you, Elizabeth, I am now doing a podcast as well. It's called Let Me Put a List Together, where we me and my friend and your former colleague, Brian Mitchell, we put together lists of things that we are passionate about and we rank them one to 10. We have done so far 90s Saturday Night Live. And we just recently got done doing one of our podcasts on late night talk show hosts. So you can find those on the top pinned on my Twitter page and my Facebook page as well. And I do believe we have our own Twitter page too for uh, Let Me Make a List. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Mark Grody, you're amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon.